Welcome to this edition of the Disciples Men podcast with your hosts, Greg Alexander and Alex Ruth. Thank you for joining us as we explore the many challenges of being man of faith in these challenging times. Disciples Men is a ministry of Disciples Home Missions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in the U.S. and Canada. Let's listen in today's conversation. Welcome to another edition of the Disciples Men podcast. Glad that you were able to join us today. Uh, I am one of the co-directors of Disciples Men, Alex Ruth, and joined by our other co-director, Greg Alexander. Greg, good to be with you again today. Great to be with you, Alex, and uh, excited about our special guest today. I am as well. We are also joined on this podcast uh, by the Reverend Monique Crane Spells, almost doctor, <laughs> not quite there yet, almost doctor. Monique, you're going to have to get your title for me because Lord I'm going to get it wrong. The title is <laughs> Vice President for Mission Advocacy and Programs and Director of Christian Education and Faith Formation for the National Convocation. You don't have a letterhead. You have a page. I have a page. <laughs> I have a page. <laughs> I have a page. And I'm Niles' one, which is the most important title. Awesome. Awesome. I've enjoyed watching Niles as he's grown over the last few years that we've known one another on Facebook and seeing the Niles posts is a highlight of most days when I can see those. So <laughs> thank you for doing that. Yes. Monique, help us to get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about your life leading up to this, the vice presidency and Christian ed and faith formation. What got you to where you are today? Oh my goodness. So it's been a a long, I think, time in relationship with the Christian church. I came to Light of the World Christian Church in 1988. <clears throat> and when I came, it was, I guess, the, the second iteration of the church, the first being Second Christian Church. And it was a large church. So when I came in 1988, there were about 3,000 members, a staff of, I think, 10 or 12 people, debt-free. Mortgage had been burned, three floors, classes every day. And about an, and an office that provided clothing, food, utility assistance, or rent assistance four days out of the week. So, um, and the reason I know this, because even at 12, um, the process in joining the church at Light of the World, which was the same for everybody, is that you join with the church and then immediately they swoop you up to this, to the upper room, <laughs> called the upper room, and they present a list of all the opportunities to serve in the church. And they say, everyone here serves. How will you serve? And they asked that of children too. And so I was 12 years old and I chose the mailroom. And I chose the mailroom for the Heaven on Earth Ministries, which was where the church broadcasts its services across the armed services and many nations. And so I worked in the mailroom with Alice Horde, the mother of our general minister and president, sorting prayers and offerings from all over the world. And so that started about two weeks after I joined the church. And so I sh always share that story because I can remember vividly. I can just remember thinking, wow, like church is bigger than this, like the building. And that was my first real awareness that, wow, we have this personal relationship. Like in my mind, I thought, well, Jesus is mine. But that was the first time I realized, well, Jesus is not just mine because I was seeing just 
thousands and thousands of letters. And then after a while, I can remember just as I was maturing, realizing how sacred it was to touch prayers from all these places and to be intentional about where they landed and elevating those prayers and stuff like that. So I think that awareness in ministry at such a young age, ministry on a wider scale, never left. And so I remember going into school thinking, I want to be a teacher. I want to stay close to education. But my mother is a career educator and said, absolutely not. And that, you know, I'm underpaid, I'm overworked and there's no glory in it. And I want you to have more than what I have and you cannot be a teacher. And so she told me that. And so I pivoted to business, unfortunately. And so going into Purdue, coming out of Purdue, coming out of undergrad, I went into business. So initially, I, well, pharmaceutical market research, I went into market research. I was in market research for my first few years out of school and was volunteering still at the church and still for the YMCA, doing college readiness for high school kids in the inner city and was just using that to balance out, quite honestly, my real uh, lack of fulfillment in business. So I was kind of getting a fix. I was getting like my, what I, I didn't know what was called. I didn't have that language at the time, but I feel like I was getting my call fix, kind of like, you know, dating the call. <laughs> I feel like I was doing that. Sorry, God. But I feel like I was doing that for quite a while. And then just kind of started to ease into community work full time, left corporate America and contacted the YMCA. I was like, I really want to do community work full time. Would you take a, you know, a corporate nerd like me? And they said, sure. And so that was the beginning of me kind of living in my call, but not for the church exclusively. And I thank God I have never understood and lived into my call for the church exclusively. I think that would be really disappointing to Jesus, quite honestly. Nor is it lost on me that religious folk said crucify him. So you would want to diversify your vineyards <laughs> because church folk will turn on you. So I went into community work, um, YMCA, state, local government, community development, military communities. And then I was fighting something, but I didn't know. And so Tom Benjamin, who you all probably know of or know, says to me one day after a meeting, you need to deal with your call. You know, you can continue to run from it, but it'll always be there waiting for you to acknowledge. And it's better to do it sooner than later because it's still going to be there. And I was like, I'm not going to be a poor pastor. I'm not going to seminary. I'm not blah, 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 blah. And it's like, hey, you know, I've just done my job by telling you. What you do with the information is your choice. It's my job as your pastor to tell you. And so I wrestled with it. And then I went to a retreat a multicultural, the first multi, it was a multicultural ecumenical retreat at Second Presbyterian Church. And it was there that I, in an ecumenical multicultural prayer service, decided to say yes. And so I said, okay. And I went to seminary. And then shortly after seminary, Mary Harris, I don't know if you, any of you all know Mary Harris, asked me to consider working at the school because I had had this sales background from pharmaceuticals and had done some good things in ministry while I was there in the CTS community. And so I did, it was a great conversation. I came on to CTS. So that was the beginning. Theological education was the beginning of my full-time work in ministry. And that also gave me the opportunity. That happened at the same time I started growing in regional ministry. So I was moderator for the Christian church in Indiana. Prior to being moderator, 
I was called with 10 other people to be a part of the MANA transformation team. MANA transformation was designed to take two years to assess the viability of the regional ministry and its relationship with congregations and see how do we strengthen these relationships um, and rebuild these bridges that have perhaps been burned and listen to how they want to be cared for by the regional staff. And so being on that team led to regional leadership. And then so that happening at the same time in this region that was very different than my congregation. Of course, you all know that. I did not realize how different most disciple churches were to light of the world until I started serving the region and traveling the state and realizing, you know, the average church is 75 members or less. It's rural and conservative and certainly white. And so that was um, good learning for me um, and good learning for those congregations because they were not accustomed to people like me showing up in their county saying uh, God wants better than what we're doing. You know, you need to see more people like me. Right. And so that kind of moved on. And thanks be to God, just continuing theological education allowed me to travel the church. So I know my privilege. We all have some modicum of it. Some have a lot more than others. But my privilege manifests as it relates to church life and being able to travel the life of the church at the expense of the seminary. So for seven years, I got to go to all the, you know, the regional assemblies and I didn't have to take on the cost of that. So I was able to learn the church really thoroughly, quite honestly, thoroughly. One of the things I shared with Matt Rosine in a meeting recently, he was like, you know, you're different. What do you bring to the table? And I said, the thing I I think I bring to the table in this vice presidency, um, but more importantly, before that to Christian ed, it was the love for Christian education that brought me to DHM. What I think I bring to that space is that I have seen the teeny tiny rural church and I've seen the big corporate sized church and I've worked with the program sized pastor and I've worked with seminarians who are fresh out of undergrad, who are second vocation, who are poor, who are fluent. And so I, I said, I, I feel like I've seen so much of the variety within the church that I have a good pulse on what I believe the church will and won't do. <laughs> I really feel like I have a good sense of how strong its muscles are, where its muscles are nimble and warm and stretched, and where its muscles are, where we're on the brink of tearing some ACLs. Right. Yeah. Right? right. So I do feel like I have a good sense of that because I've been able to experience seminarians, pastors, regions um, over the last, uh, well, now, uh, 12 years all over the church. And and I, like I said, I, I openly acknowledge the privilege that allowed me to do that. Most people don't have the money to travel the whole church for 70 years. Right. And I didn't either. So that's what led me here. That's what led me here. I was at Bright Divinity School. I was a CTS seven years, Bright Divinity for a year. And while I was there in Texas, I realized I didn't want to raise my son in Texas. Mm-hmm. And so I started considering general church leadership. And that's how I ended up here. The vice presidency, I didn't seek that. <laughs> that one it sought that you. One sought you out, didn't it? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was important to partner with, with my colleagues. <laughs> and so I just always was looking to see ways that I could get different people to contribute to the Christian aid resources and kind of visit other people's ministries. And I guess to look at 
the unit with curiosity as opposed to fear or discouragement, like to see like, what is this about? So I think coming into the space with that posture, I think probably is what landed me in this seat. I don't and, function in fear, definitely much more curiosity. Yeah. In full disclosure to our listeners, the places you were, you were referencing are all in Indianapolis. And uh, yeah, yeah, light of the world and and the other place, CTS, Christian Fletcher. CTS, absolutely. Yes, thank and, you for that. Uh, yeah, and also that you are under the current structure of DHM, you are our boss, <laughs> and we, and we are delighted. No we are delighted for that. No so it's it's it really has been an honor for us to to have share this ministry with you, and you've been a wonderful support to us so far. I'm curious now that you've had a chance to survey the landscape. What do you think are the biggest challenges we face in the in disciples' home mission? Hmm. I'll, I'll narrow it down a little. Yeah, what a great question. I one of the I think greatest challenges we have, which is not something that we I don't think I think it's something we inherited, is that there is a there is a notable disconnect between the congregational expression of our church and the general church. There's a disconnect. And I don't know if that was the intention, but I'm thinking that the regional expression of the church would be the liaison between the congregational and the general. But maybe, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that somewhere along the line, somehow, there is a disconnect. Mm -hmm between these two expressions. And I would not sit that at solely at the seat of regional expressions because to disconnect, both people have to let go. Yep. If I'm committed to holding your hand, Greg, and holding your hand, Alex, there's no way that Derek Perkins in Missouri can make me turn loose your hand. I've got to let go of my your hand or you got to let go of mm -hmm. my hand. Mm -hmm. So I can't sit that solely at the feet of regional ministry. What I'm saying is there's a disconnect there that we have inherited that must be mended. And so one of the things I learned in the Duke um, Foundations of Christian Leadership a program at Duke Divinity School, we were doing some design thinking exercises. And one of the exercises that I really found to be life-changing is they take this quilt, they take a beautiful quilt, and in the presence of our cohort, they cut this quilt into, uh, I was like, oh, my God. they cut the quilt into like 20 pieces. And so you can see all the layers and the piling. You can see all the work that's gone into this quilt. And so they cut it up and said, this quilt is not useful anymore. Nobody wants to use this quilt the way it is, whatever. So they cut up and then they give us a piece of it and they give us a seam ripper. And they said, now decide what of your piece you can retain mm. by pulling pulling the seams apart, but leaving enough that something else can be built with what remains. Mm. And so we learn how to do construction for the purpose of mending as opposed to as for the purpose of discarding. Yeah. And so that that exercise was so beautiful for me. It was a really beautiful exercise. I remember still like the discomfort I had with the seam ripper destroying, because I was thinking somebody, some woman made this quilt, doggone mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. We're tearing it up. Yep. 
But the more I tore it up and the more the speaker was talking about now thinking like, what pieces would you use for something else? If you're building a new quilt, you're building a shirt, or like what pieces would you keep and why would you keep those pieces? And, and so it started to become really generative. And so I know that while our work is to provide resources for the church and on behalf of the church, those of us called to general church ministry have an additional to me, peace, an informal peace that is not spoken. And I think that is to do mending work. Yes. And mending work requires humility. It requires shedding the value of blame. Blame becomes, it has no value. It just doesn't help you. Mm -hmm. So you let blame go. You put yourself in a listening posture. You allow people to complain about the general church in your presence and you don't internalize that. You listen and think, okay, well, there's there's an opportunity in this. Like, I'm being told how to mend this. Their judgment is a seed, right? I think that sits underneath our work. And I believe that those who don't have that posture, and there are those down here at General Church who don't have that posture. They, they've gotten it twisted. They think the church exists to support their office as opposed to vice versa. Um, and those are people who've probably been down here a long time. But I will say for those who are called to the general church in this season, I think in over the next 10 years, if, if they don't see mending as a part of their work, I don't know how helpful they'll be to the average pastor whose church is on the margins and is on the brink and barely survived the pandemic and doesn't know how to reach young people and doesn't know how to or doesn't feel comfortable partnering with agencies. You've got to amend that relationship and give that person something that's hopeful. Show your value um, before they become a regular conversation partner with you. So I just, I think that's that's the biggest challenge, the disconnect between congregations and general church. And then the comfort. I think comfort is an idol God in the church. I think it's an idol God. The dominant culture is saturated in the sense of entitlement to be comfortable. Yep. You know, that that my work mm -hmm. shouldn't require me to be uncomfortable. And I just don't know how that aligns with following Jesus. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There's always a cross at the I end guess, when you follow Jesus. I mean, I mean, <laughs> and, no, and there's, there's a cross at the end. And then there's also like literally give us this day our daily bread. Yes. There's that faith walking mm -hmm. piece mm -hmm. yep. that I'm going to wake up. I'm going to go out. I'm going to send my friends out with me. We're going to trust that somebody's going to open their door, give us some bread, give us some fish, let us lay our head down. Um, and we're going to keep doing this. And we're going to go from town to town and do this. And we're going to have naysayers and we're going to have mad, angry priests. And we're going to have Pharisees and Sadducees who just obstruct everything we try to do, but we're still going to do it. For me, this is the passion that fuels my Christian education work and why I took the job of Christian education. Because let's be clear, y'all do know Christian education does not pay what TCU pays, right? <laughs> okay, so this, that was a faith decision. And so to come back and do that work was to say, okay, if I really believe that Jesus is our leader, I've got a lot of work to do to help people understand that. Like, mm -hmm. I really need to teach Jesus. Yeah. And which, which I'm, not even, I'm not even thinking, this is, you all have a curriculum. You all have, I mean, you have something the Jesus way, right? Yeah. But when, when I found out you had that, I was like, hello, like exactly because 
that's the way. If we're going to follow him, that's the way. We're going to have to lay down this comfort piece. And so right now, it's the, the comfort, the idolatry of comfort is a really hard thing, I think, for our church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, to share. There are churches who are deciding they'd rather die than be uncomfortable. Yep. And I think one of the biggest challenges of regional ministry for me was seeing that happen. I yep. watched churches meet, go through the new beginnings process with Hope Partnership and DCF and do their discernment and come to the conclusion, no, we would rather close than change. Yep. So I've seen churches hand their keys over, yep. liquidate their funds, keep one of their small little ministries, whether it's pantry or knitting or blankets or close their churches because they, well, we don't want to do ministry different. Yeah. Or, or they call, they call a pastor from a different, different denomination. That will, there it is. That will sing, sing the song they want sung rather than the That's one exactly that right. we would feel the gospel called us to sing. So. Yeah. That's right. They'll call somebody outside of disciples. That's going to preach exclusion. That's going to mm -hmm. preach separation. Um, that's going to foster polarization and that's going to sterilize the gospel. And so when they do that, you know, witnessing that, and I'm and I'm glad that I was able to walk with Rick and do that as the regional minister because he and I are very different, but we worked well together in that he was certainly he's he's very diplomatic. So mm -hmm. we <laughs> and he functions in diplomacy and I function in prophecy. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> So you That's bring it. those things together, you know, actually, but if you bring those things together, like a lot could be accomplished. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and I think sometimes we try to get those who are diplomatic to be prophetic. That's not, and that's not their design. Yeah. Yeah. We try to get those who are prophetic to be diplomatic and that's not how God cut them. And we need to just kind of like say, okay, you be you. I'm going to be me. And let's follow Jesus. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, let's see what kind of new quilt we can put together with those pieces. Know, Greg. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When I was serving as regional minister in Kentucky, the disconnect was very real. And part of the disconnect was, and it came over time. It wasn't just, you had somebody make a declaration one day, this is how we're going to be. People responded to the circumstances that they were handed. Yep. And we moved into a very competitive time between general church and regional church. And that was highly problematic in my perspective. When I started, there was a sense that the region's responsibility was to be the dispenser of resources generated by the general church to okay. the congregations. We were that piece. But that was in the late 80s. And what was happening is that the general church couldn't supply, didn't have, was, was losing ground with as money dried up and resources dried up. They couldn't provide the, the base of resource required. And so everybody scrambled to try to fill the void. Yep. And mm -hmm. Larger regions like Kentucky said, well, we have people that can do that. So why don't we take that responsibility on since it can't be done through Indianapolis anymore? Mm -hmm. And that created quite a lot of tension in a lot of places. And I've apologized for any that I helped create around that when I was serving. But I always felt that cooperation, you know, finding out what piece of the quilt needed to be put together to make it work for the whole, the glory of God was, was always our primary task. And I, I just, that's a long-winded way to say, I, I thank God that at least within the DHM experience that I've had the last, what, four or five years now, Alex, however long it's been, yeah. there is, there is a genuine commitment of mending. Mm. 
I've sensed that the old uh, competitive spirit is gone, and it's uh, what what can we do to glorify God through the work that we do together is uh, really is a dominant theme. And I hope people listening who don't have a chance to know you, Monique, directly, or Chris, or the rest of the staff, DHM, that you do understand it's a different feel. Mm -hmm. It's a much different experience than what many of us knew in times past. Okay. And I'm I'm not claiming any any hand in that whatsoever, but the, the leadership now DHM, that is an absolute priority. And it's a privilege really for me mm -hmm. to have a chance to be a part of that environment. And it keeps me honest and helps me know how God is calling me to serve at this particular stage in my life. And I, I, I really thank God for, for the change. And I'm excited to see how we live into it more fully. Amen. Thank God for evolutions, you know, the different seasons mm -hmm. of ministry. We don't like that our, our knees ache and you wake up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, or at least I do. <laughs> All the things that have come uh, with being middle age, as frustrating as they are and scary in some ways, they're still worth the wisdom. Mm -hmm. The wisdom, you can feel it. You can sense, we can, at least I feel like I can sense when I'm functioning in, in, in wisdom and functioning in the spirit and trusting the spirit with wisdom in a way that I could not have done 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or even five years ago. I can feel myself having lived half my life. Yeah. 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 Monique, I, I, I'd like to, to hear your take uh, and talk a little bit about um, why, hmm, maybe why is not the right question, but tell me a little bit about the, the, the second part of your title, Christian Ed and Faith Formation. You've right. made it pretty clear in a couple of our conversations and some of our meetings that, that this is both and. We need both Christian ed and faith formation. So yeah. talk a little bit about, about the reasoning behind that. Yeah, so I've, I've started using and because it's always been written and described with this backslash as if you can say that. Christian ed, faith formation. I'm like, well, who runs four words together? Why, why are we doing this? I, I still understand. But I think people used to understand them as one of the same, and I just don't believe that they are. I think Christian education is born of institutions and doctrine and, and structure and history. And I believe faith formation is born of the spirit. It is something that we experience and develop in walking with God and being tested and questioning God and revisiting our beliefs and allowing our beliefs to evolve and change. I think that's faith formation mm -hmm. um, and spiritual practices. That's faith formation. But Christian education, for most of us, it has been learning Bible verses when we're young, BBS, camp, it's doctrine, it's, it's the design, it's all the things that um, it's the order that has been offered to us to create kind of a seedbed for faith formation. So I can say that while learning scripture and reading the Bible and learning hymns and singing those things and Easter programs and all those things at church were uh, formative and they were um, meaningful and they added value to my life and they made me uh, a really good churchgoer. I can say that none of those things pulled me out of deep, dark despair that I was experiencing as an undergrad in my third year of university. Yeah. No, no, there was, I mean, there was a period where I was just so sad, 
Um, there were some things I was experiencing that kind of had shaken me to my core. I didn't have the language of shaken me theologically, but I can say they had shaken me theologically. Why would God allow this, that the piece? Why so much pain? Why this and why that? And so I was having these hard theological questions. And I can even recall asking, calling back home and asking questions of pastors that were on staff and, oh, no, you have to figure it out on your own. We can't answer that for you. You have to, you know, you look into, nobody wanted to ask, answer the hard questions. Right. Um, for fear that it would shake my faith. But I want to say my faith is already being shaking. It's already shaking. Because I'm, you know, it's 1,100 Black folk out of 36,000. <laughs> on a campus and I could go all week without seeing anybody looks like me unless I seek them out and I'm in despair and I can re recite all these verses and stuff and it's not pulling me out of despair but I can remember being alone in a room having some really really sad thoughts I was 20 years old 19 20 years old and all I could think to say was Jesus. And I just kept repeating the name Jesus. It came like a prayer, almost a, a mantra, until I until I was sure and I was not alone. And where the I was wrapped in something other than myself. My strength was not my own. And while I was still sad, I was not lost. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, I, I feel like I, I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm sorry, but I wasn't lost. You know, they say all who wander are not lost. It was one of those things. I was wandering in despair, but I was not lost. And I didn't even know what would make me even call the name. Right. Because all I kept thinking was there's nothing I can pray. I want to pray anymore. I want to. And so I just said the name <clears throat> and just you know, it's this regular, very sad, uh, teary cadence until things started to lift a little bit. And I remember then when I came in about over the course of six months, I just got stronger and stronger and stronger. But I remember when I got to the other side of that, um, I learned two things about myself. One, that very quickly, um, if you're not careful, too many days sad can become depression. So that oh, there's yeah. a slippery slope, right? I learned what my slope was uh, so that I could never go that dive that deeply again. So I learned that. And then two, I learned that I actually had faith hmm. that I did not just have church and that my faith was not my membership in a church. It was not that I knew how to do communion. It wasn't that I had something inside <clears throat> that external forces were unable to destroy. Yeah. And and that's powerful. Mm -hmm. That's a absolutely. powerful <laughs> discovery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it changed my life. And so now I remember that and I'm clear about that. So when I'm designing a resource or when I'm thinking about oh, who would be a good writer or what, are, what direction do I want to guide the writers, I'm guiding the writers and saying, okay, here are some Christian air resources. We want to know some, here's where you can find some songs. Okay, here's a... Here's your call to worship. You want it. I know you want it. Here's your litany. I know you want it. Okay, there it is. Check your box. Now let's write some things and ask some questions that really start to yes. stir your spirit and get at what do you really feel about some things? Like, where do you stand on this with God? And how does that manifest itself in your life in the world? So Christian education and faith formation work together. 
and one has been for many a catalyst for the other. <clears throat> and luckily, when I think if you've, if you've been formed in faith and you have a faith, it definitely helps you to be a lot more creative and less indoctrinal and less churchy in your Christian education resources, but they're not the same. Yeah. When I think about the people who are in our Christian community or close to us who have died by suicide, they had Christian education. Yeah. They also had some mental health issues as well. But at the same time, what I would have loved to be able to do is to do a little bit more faith formation. It, it, in tandem with medication and maybe inpatient services. But a lot of times people are like, well, they grew up in the church. I'm like, so what? So did Dylan Roof. Okay. So I'm like, it's, so that's Christian Ed. He experienced Christian Ed. But faith formation, in addition to good therapy and good village, should keep you from doing things like that. Right, right. So that's, that's, my, that's my variance. It, it seems to me, kind of picking up on that theme, that one of the things that the church has historically done, at least in my lifetime, especially early on, is that Christian education was designed to make you good partners within the organization. Yep. To make, you know, to be good church support people. You give your money to the church to support it. Mm -hmm. And oh yeah, we do a little mission on the side. There it is, the accessory. And, and but it, all the learning was designed to make you a good corporate citizen within the church structure. I think what yeah. I've seen over the last oh good ten years or so is this sort of re reclamation of spiritual formation, where we're starting to bring the whole concept of spirit of God back into the flow of the church. And how I see that distinguished is the difference between uh, building the church and building the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. You know, building the church puts you in a competitive stance with all the other churches. Right. Building yeah, the yeah. kingdom of God, there's no competition except within yourself and your relationship with God through Christ. And, That's it. Uh, and to do the kingdom work requires a pretty deep spiritual connection with God. Mm -hmm. You got to do that and part. That, and because when it keeps you grounded. Yeah. And when you begin to develop that, you want to develop that more and you recognize there's less and less energy for maintaining the corporate structure. Right. And that just doesn't feed you anymore. And it sounded like that was a part of what you went through in your journey. Oh, absolutely. That was, that was absolutely what I went through and having learned those lessons and made the hard choices and, and financial sacrifices to be well, to be spiritually well. I know what we're asking people to do when we're talking about faith formation, we're asking them to, them to grapple with hard things. We're asking them oftentimes to lay some things down that they enjoy, or perhaps even some affiliations that bring them quite a bit of security mm -hmm. and freedom. And so I understand faith formation is a risky endeavor. I don't know that there's a lot of risk involved in Christian education, but faith formation comes with risk because you function differently. And even when I think about some of my friends who... <clears throat> Who have lost loved ones to suicide when there has been faith formation when they're they really are spiritual people they know that those people are are not far from them right so there's even a different experience of that loss and they're certain even that their children are well even in the most, most tragic of circumstances i think even when the tragedy still still occurs 
faith formation, spiritual formation changes how that even is experienced. Mm -hmm. um, so my hope is that we would be in our mending work, that we would be strengthening the faith of people, getting that muscle stronger, a little bit stronger. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I forget who the quote is attributed to, could be Wesley or somebody else who asked, what has prayer done? It, and the answer was, it hasn't changed anything external, but it has mm -hmm. changed me. And that's the faith formation piece is that that's exactly right. it, it, it's not about changing anything outside the four walls of Alex. It's about changing everything within yeah. being that I am, mind, body, spirit, the whole works, growing to be more the person God is calling me to be. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And and within a systems context, yes, when you begin to change, the system has to change or determine what it's going to do with the change in you. <laughs> and did, and you read, did you read the Linton Reflections already? That's no, that's, I, I taught that is at LTS for 10 years. So. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's what Fiori Kudain, um, who's a people-to-people -people person at DOM, she wrote that in her reflection. In her reflection uh, for the for for our Linton, she said that that that, that <laughs> when you've done that work, you know the things around you have to change, or sometimes you have to change what you're around because you're transformed by that spiritual yeah. work. That, yeah, and that's how it was always designed to work. That's why Jesus didn't take on the system. Right. Jesus changed the people within the system. It wasn't an immediate impact. It took time. It took. Time to get a critical mass of change hearts and minds in order to make the movement go. And uh, all Jesus was concerned about was what was in your heart and what was in your mind and how you exercise those things. To me, that's the beautiful part of it all is that when you're focused more on, on what's in the heart and mind of your people than you are about the church budget, it, it makes a huge difference. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I, I say it at least once a month. Mission doesn't work for finance. Finance works for mission. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Amen mm -hmm. to that. Amen. Well, we've probably taken all the time we need to take of yours today. Monique, you actually have real ministry to do. Alex and I are just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, you know, most days. And no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Greg, Greg is. I can't speak for Alex. So <laughs> we're delighted that we finally got you on the podcast, Monique. Thank you for taking the time with us. And thank you for being such a great inspiration and support to the work Alex and I do for Disciple Men. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for kindness and for vision. The reality is <laughs> you all do a lot with little. <laughs> we all do a lot with little. Yeah. And you all have your hands full doing other things. And you've stayed at the table. It's never lost on me that people don't have to keep showing up. Um, in particular, people at our age, we have options. Mm -hmm. you know, that's yep. one of the being our age is that there are other things we can be doing. And we have a lot of transferable skills at this point in our life. And so every day that we stay at the table, it really is a gift to the church. It is a gift to a church. This work is thankless, but I don't want to be another person that doesn't say thank you. Oh, it should not be thankless. Amen. It should not be thankless, doggone it. Yeah. And so I just appreciate the fact that y'all are still at the table in this season. We get to be at the table together. Yes. Amen to that. 
And I am excited about the focus and the uh, energy that you have brought um, to us in the mission advocacy and programs piece of DHM as we uh, build some synergy, some coalescence, some cohesion, um, all those good words that that may not have been in existence before. It certainly is now. And that is, it's exciting to be a part of something that is growing and is changing and is really going to be making, I think, an impact in the lives of of church members and of churches. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I am one of the few people in the church that has a team that is majority male. (laughs) And I can tell you what, I know what a blessing that is. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't heard that for a while. And darn we are, aren't we? I I have a counter narrative. That's the thing. That's another thing is that I have a counter narrative. You all lead disciples men, but four of our team are males. Yeah. And so I think that we are shifting the narrative of our current state. The the dynamic of our team is countercultural right now. Mm -hmm. And and so that's an opportunity for us if we lean into it and tell our story. I would add, just as a postscript to that, Mm -hmm. I think we also are working hard to show how it can work. There's a place for all of us. And uh, trying to be exclusive and trying to create a world where some folks aren't welcome or don't seem to be skilled enough to sit at the table with the rest of us. We know that's absurd. And I think we're showing that Alex and I compromise nothing of who we are as white males Mm -hmm. to be a part of of this team at DHM. And I hope hope we're continuing to learn and model for others what a beautiful tapestry life can be within the church and, and within society as a whole. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Amen. You all do your wives proud. Uh, <laughs> we both married up. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Tell them I said hi too, by the way. Uh, we definitely will. will do. We'll Monique, do. Okay. thank you so much for your time today. It is deeply appreciated and uh, I enjoy getting to work with you and uh, look forward to a, a, a long uh, and fruitful uh, relationship in the future. Amen. See y'all. Thanks y'all. Thanks Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Disciples Men Podcast. Our special thanks to our good friend, the Reverend Dr. Dean Phelps, for providing the special music of this podcast. You can discover more of Dean's music at deanphelpsmusic.com. And you can learn more about the ministry of Disciples Men on Facebook and through disciplesmissions.org. 